0: to another episode of Stories from Sydney.
1: A podcast where each fortnight one of us plucks out a lesser-known story from the history of Sydney to delight and surprise the other and so that we can all gradually become better acquainted with this city that we call home.
0: That's beautiful. I'm Jed.
1: And I'm Alistair. And last episode, Jed, you were the one telling us a wonderful story. Do you care to uh, recap what it was all about?
0: It was a daring tale of dashing chivalry uh it was the story of captain moonlight as he made his way in and around sydney delighting surprising and enthralling the residents of the colonies of new south wales and victoria
1: indeed they're not enthralling all of them a few were less than impressed
0: yes his victims mainly (laughs) yes but this week alistair you have a story to tell me and you did give me a clue last week I recall fire. I recall some World War One references that were uh, obvious enough for me to land them. Exactly,
1: Jed. You were right on the money with your guesses last week. So I thought we would just launch straight into it this week. But before we do, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, uh, which is the land upon which today's story mostly takes place. It's a Sydney-centric, CBD-centric story this mm-hmm. week. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which I'm currently recording, which is the Bijgal people.
0: And in my case, it's the Darwal people, uh, as I've recently relocated to Wollongong.
1: I think you're on a record of different recording locations right now.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Never in the same place
0: we'll see there's still a few to go this season I also just remembered Alistair a certain lolly shop involved in this story that I'm looking forward to having the tale make its way around to
1: yeah and amongst all the other stuff I'm trying to get some lollies into the story too we'll see how it goes it's a jam-packed I'm a bit intimidated the political story was maybe biting off more than I could chew because turns out I don't know anything about the history of politics in Australia it was all a surprise to
0: me excellent
1: all right. So our story today is indeed about the World War One era, and particularly tensions within working class politics in Sydney and Australia more broadly. Mm-hmm. So to kind of set the backdrop, uh, by the outbreak of the First World War, organised labour in Australia had over fifty years of significant achievements under its belt, and in the latter eighteen hundreds, uh, Australia was considered a workers' paradise of sorts, at least in comparison to many other nations.
0: Mm okay
1: yeah (laughs) the eight hour working day had been uh, one of the largest achievements of many labor unions uh, within australia the slogan of eight hours labor eight hours recreation and eight hours rest had been formulated as early as 1817 and this aspiration came to prominence in britain during the 1830s 40s and 50s during the Chartist movement but it was really when these kind of radical out there ideas about only working eight hours a day made their way over to Australia, that some really enormous achievements were made quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so traditionally, Melbourne is uh, famous for winning the eight hour day amongst the first places in the world. When in 1856, stonemasons working on the quadrangle at the University of Melbourne, down their tools, walked off the job and insisted on an eight hour day without loss of pay, which they were granted by uh, the government. And that was then extended to all labourers employed on public works. So quite a broad-ranging victory there. There'd only been 20 years of Melbourne by then. Yeah, amazing. I think part of the problem was there weren't many labourers around with skills because they were all at the gold rush. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay. (laughs) Nothing like the the leverage you get with the gold rush. Yeah, so the famous uh, eight-hour-day monument in Melbourne uh, memorialises this. But what many people don't know is that Sydney also has a little bit of a claim to history here because actually some stonemasons in Sydney had also won the right to an eight-hour day uh, somewhat earlier in the same year and that was on a couple of different are sites that the strikes took place which won them that right but amongst those was the construction of Tooth's Brewery on Parramatta Road at Broadway Mm. which is that uh, huge brewery complex that now has I think it's called one central park (laughs) with the massive hanging gardens the big glass uh, apartment block.
0: The Abercrombie at one end and the Clare at the other.
1: Exactly yes I didn't know that uh, yeah played a role in uh, the early history of the eight-hour day in Sydney um, but this is much lesser known because it was only winning the rights for Stonemasons specifically, and also they had a subsequent loss in pay. It was kind of proportionate to the amount of hours they were working. So it wasn't such a, a broad and arranging victory as in Melbourne.
0: On a mostly unrelated aside, my dad used to deliver beer from that brewery, and you'd get a free beer on the way out huh. after you picked up a load of beers. Delightful. Um, and there was a whole pub just for workers. So even well into the 20th century, I think they'd made sure to keep and potentially even improve on their working conditions. Yeah,
1: nothing like a beer when you pick up the delivery.
0: For a long drive.
1: (laughs) Need one for the road very nice uh so it's actually i also never fully had looked into it it would have taken just some simple googling but this is also why a labor day is on very strange dates in australia and different dates in sydney and melbourne or victoria and new south wales they're celebrating these early victories of the stonemasons which were on different dates and that's remained the same way all the way to the current day when our labor days are on different dates and also not on may the 1st which is Kind of International Workers' Day in many other places in the world.
0: Probably just because the Americans cooked it up.
1: Uh, the, the May the First?
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Some imperials.
1: Uh, it's also a long story. It was yeah, it was one of the kind of international meetings. I think it was only in 1890, or it was it, it was much later actually that that date was set upon as a day to agitate for, amongst other things, the eight-hour day. But as we know, the stonemasons in uh, Australia had won that right long ago, mm. and they were, they'd were they been celebrating for decades.
0: Is this like the f- stonemasons is in the Freemasons, or is this just some people who were cutting stone?
1: No, this is quite literally people who are very good at cutting sandstone, I imagine.
0: So nothing to do with all those Masonic halls that I'd love to know more about.
1: No, we, that will have to be another episode. Okay. Uh, okay. These people were just very skilled, well-organized, knew that they had a craft that uh, untrained, unskilled laborers couldn't do in the way that they could. And they knew they were in very high demand due to the influx of wealth and the construction boom brought around by the gold rush. Mm -hmm. Um, So not only were these significant achievements made through direct industrial action, uh, but working class interests were also making significant inroads into democratic politics, uh, this time in the form of the Australian Labor Party, which is the oldest political party in existence in Australia today.
0: And why does it have no U? Uh,
1: yeah, I did look into that briefly. It's I can't quite remember the details, but it's not that interesting in the way I, I can't remember. Okay,
0: carry <laughs> I on think then. At the
1: time, spelling rules were looser, and they just happened upon it. There is a story, uh, anyhow. Doesn't come into the owls though. <laughs> I should preface this by also acknowledging that I'm not particularly well versed on many things in Australian politics, including why Labor doesn't have a U. And looking into it, things get quite complicated in the first years after Federation. Uh, So it seems to me, at least, that the history of other political parties in Australia can kind of be read as a succession of mergers in opposition to the Labour Party and the gradual accumulation of disgruntled splinters from the Labour Party who just seem to be continuously... Swelling the ranks of the opposition.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: So we'll see this theme continue in our episode today. Uh, but to set the stage, the Labour Party was a trailblazer in the global context, again, uh, in that it formed the first ever Labour-led national government in the world in 1904, though this was as a minority government with support from Alfred Deacon's Protectionist Party. So this early alliance between Labour and the Protectionist Party was opposed by the other of the three big parties uh, years after Federation, which was the Free Trade Party. Uh, But the Protectionists and the Labour Party managed to establish firm tariff protections of Australian industry and also put in place the White Australia policy.
0: Yeah, I guess that's a form of protectionism.
1: Yeah, and... uh, in a way organized labor was always looking to restrict the number of laborers mm. in the kind of working pool so that the workers could demand higher wages and, yeah, we're in a better position. Um, so they were on board with that, though as that became entrenched, both the White Australia policy and firm tariff protections, and that kind of became the de facto standard, the Protectionist Party kind of began to dwindle in support because people kind of felt like, well, they've, they've done their thing. And increasingly, Labour was sweeping up seats from this Protectionist Party. Uh, so seeing where this was headed, the uh, Free Trade Party decided to ditch their old moniker completely, rename themselves the Anti-Socialist Party, And encourage the Protectionist Party to switch sides and join their ranks.
0: Mm -hmm. And is this a federal, are we talking federally or in the state? Because I guess we've jumped across from colony to state somewhere in here.
1: Yeah, so this is, uh, we're talking federally in the early years of the 1900s here. I stick mostly Mm -hmm. to federal politics in this episode because we end up talking about conscription as well. Uh, So more kind of federal issues.
0: We might get to talk about Edmund Barton.
1: We might, though I don't think we will. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This this, uh, alliance between the Protectionist Party and the former Free Trade Party seems amusing to me because they were literally named after their diametrically opposed views on foreign trade Mm -hmm. and then came together. But this didn't stop them. And so they formed in 1909 the Fusion Party. Well, that was the kind of. (laughs) That wasn't really their name. That was the uh, common name given to them. (laughs) They actually called themselves the Commonwealth Liberal Party. But that is confusing because they're only a kind of distant forefather of the uh, Liberal Party that we know today. Uh huh. Um, And it was still a kind of loose agglomeration of uh, politicians. So people tended to just call it the Fusion Party. Um, However, nothing was to stop the March of Labour at the next election. And in 1910, the Labour Party won the federal election and formed the first ever majority Labour government in the world at the national level. So going into the war, we've got a strong Labour movement and a Labour political party that has won kind of unprecedented elections and has a huge amount of strength uh, in the federal parliament.
0: And a fusion of opposition. (laughs)
1: and everyone else just kind of desperately scrabbling to form the opposition to them, yeah. Uh, So we'll get to the war now. So after Britain's declaration of war with Germany in August 1914, uh, although Australia was drawn into the war as part of the Commonwealth, the nature and extent of their involvement were really matters for local decision. And as we both know, enthusiasm and fervor that greeted the war was enormous. And so to begin with, the... Involvement was uh, kind of huge amounts of people rushing to the barracks to try to enlist so that they could get overseas. Uh, But this initial enthusiasm, as we also know, was only surpassed by the misery and death that the First World War ended up bringing.
0: And that was was that my story in Central, where they were after the barracks in um, Liverpool.
1: Yes, so we have talked a little bit about this period as well. It seems to be a wild period um, with the Battle of Central Central Station when yeah, Mm -hmm. some disgruntled. soldiers on a camp around liverpool yeah uh took their displeasure onto trains and headed to central station where they uh, had a kind of armed standoff with police and went rioting right
0: and burnt down stores belonging to non white Australians, as yeah, I recall. Yeah, uh,
1: that might come in a little bit to this episode, the feelings about foreigners. But the uh, disgruntlement within the soldiers isn't necessarily a, a major thing. We're talking more about people who were opposed to the war effort completely and wouldn't even, weren't even signing up.
0: Ah, the old white feathers. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's one of the things you learn at
1: school, right? That <laughs>
0: yeah, <it must laughs> women be. gave you a white
1: feather if you didn't. Uh, Didn't sign up to fight. Yeah. So I didn't realize that there was quite such vociferous opposition to conscription. Uh, So anyway, this is all foreshadowing what's to come. (laughs) Australia was in the middle of a federal election as the First World War kicked off and the enthusiasm for the war was kind of spread equally amongst the, this new Liberal Party and the Labour Party. And it certainly didn't seem to hold the Labour Party back because uh, they won another um, election in the federal parliament with an outright majority in both houses. And the only opposition to the war came from the extreme radical fringes of the Labour movement.
0: I feel like as a like vaguely centrist political party, you cannot go against a war that's got everyone all whipped up into a frenzy yes absolutely maybe five years in when everyone's dying you can kind of start to go well maybe it wasn't a good idea but when it starts unless you're on the radical fringe you are pro-war
1: yeah and this was a wildly popular war when it first kicked off amongst all of the combatants involved uh on on either side (laughs) yeah people were very enthusiastic about it so absolutely this isn't this is kind of to be expected in the context of world (laughs) war one that that all mainstream finally a huge war just what we've been waiting for yeah, no, I think that was generally the sentiment. Um, so the industrial workers of the world, popularly known as the Wobblies, and I can't tell you why that is because no one is quite sure why that is, but we'll just oh, call them the Wobblies from now on.
0: Talking about all of the industrial workers of the world.
1: Uh, No, we are not talking about all of the industrial workers in the world. (laughs) That would be a lot of people. Uh, And as much as the uh, political grouping or movement known as the IWW, or Industrial Workers of the World, would like it, they were not all members of the... uh, Wobblies. The Wobblies. Uh, But the Wobblies were just such a fringe group opposing the war in Sydney. And at the declaration of war, their pamphlets read, If the politicians of Australia want war... Let them take their own carcasses to the firing line to be targets for modern machine guns. Don't become hired murderers. Don't join the army or navy. Hmm. And how was this received? Well, mostly it just fell on deaf ears, to be honest, at first. (laughs) People weren't that interested in it. There was a lot of enthusiasm for joining the effort. And the government didn't actually really have to have a recruitment campaign at all, because the uh, campaign ran itself, if you will. Uh, so the Wobblies didn't make much impact to begin with. But I imagine you're probably wondering a little bit about them since they seem to have been so prescient about machine guns and how much damage they would do in modern warfare.
0: <laughs> they were building the bloody things.
1: Yeah, they have seen them in the factories, they know what damage they can do, and they're not getting involved in the war. Um, I don't know if they were actually working in munitions factories because the Wobblies actually emerged from that hotbed of socialist agitation that is the western half of the United States in the early 1900s. Yeah. Not what I'd consider
0: a hotbed of socialism
1: these days, but apparently.
0: Oh, it's actually the case. I assumed you were just making fun of the western half of the United States. Uh, it was
1: a little, but no, it's genuinely the case. This is where this um, fairly okay. influential and significant uh, radical socialist movement uh, came from. Uh, there are apparently really horrific conditions, particularly in the mines. Um, of these kind of newly established uh, states uh, and territories in the west of the United States. And this had really established a revolutionary working-class consciousness in these states. And that kind of came together w- in the Wobblies, uh, which I think was established in about 1905, early 1900s, in Chicago.
0: Probably in the eastern half of the United States. Chicago. I'd say so.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a gateway <laughs> to the west, is not it?
0: <laughs> but don't let that hold you back.
1: No, there, a lot of... Um, A lot of the activities were based in Arizona, Wyoming, yeah, New Mexico, stuff like that. So just that, I guess, if you need a good headquarters, you need a significant city. Chicago was the one. Um, Anyhow, the Wobblies promoted the concept of one big union. Uh, So they opposed the status quo of separate unions for each craft or profession. Uh, with each profession banding together to negotiate better conditions within their particular industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were much more interested in the idea of all workers, both skilled and unskilled, and from all industries, uniting to form one big union. And they could use their collective power to then overthrow the system of wage labor once and for all with one big strike.
0: Mm, Big ambitions.
1: Uh, So until that day came though, because it is quite a grand ambition, the Wobblies were very much interested in using direct industrial action uh, rather than political avenues to achieve better conditions for the working class. Alongside strikes, they also advocated go slow, uh, which was working less efficiently than capacity, and industrial sabotage even. So uh, this would include under-servicing machinery, Kind of purposefully breaking things a little, all kinds of things like that, as negotiation tools in industrial disputes mm-hmm. and political disputes. Uh, they had branches all around the English speaking world and a headquarters in a small headquarters in Sydney uh, where they had a small printing press. And it was at this printing press that first got them in major trouble during the war, as in mid 1915, as war raged on, the secretary of the Sydney branch of the Wobblies uh, and editor of their newspaper Direct Action, Tom Barker, plastered an infamous set of posters around Sydney entitled To Arms. And the poster read Capitalists, parsons, politicians, landlords, newspaper editors, and other stay at home patriots, your country needs you in the trenches. Workers, follow your masters.
0: Oh. Was it like largely seen as satire, or was it seen as like yes. a vaguely genuine call to patriot causes?
1: Well, actually, your question there is, is an amusing one because it's going to come up in just a moment. The government was not amused by this uh, what was seen as a satirical uh, poster having a go at all of the uh, public figures who were encouraging people to join in the war when they themselves are staying at home mm-hmm. So uh, Tom Barker was arrested in early November under the New South Wales War Precautions Regulations for publishing a poster which was prejudicial to recruiting. Uh, his defense in court comes back to your question, Jed. Excellent. I found it quite amusing. He he freely admitted to having published the poster. He was happy to say that that was him, but he pointed out that it quite clearly was designed to stimulate recruiting, encouraging the wealthy and powerful to join the war effort, and suggesting that workers merely follow them in their tracks.
0: Brilliant. Excellent.
1: I thought so too. Uh, sadly, the magistrate was not impressed and sentenced him to six months in prison.
0: How? It was a foolproof defence.
1: <laughs> I feel like it was a very Jed defence. But sadly, that doesn't stand when you've got a conservative magistrate just uh, oh. looking down his
0: nose at you. I'm going to have to get some legal advice about this decision. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, Barker got some legal advice as well and actually got the decision overturned on appeal, I think for some quite boring legal technicalities that we won't get into. Not to do with his excellent defence. But this didn't stop him from continuing to publish cartoons and posters urging people not to go to war. By the middle of 1916, he found himself sentenced to 12 months hard labour for another poster critical of recruitment and the war effort. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So, outraged, the Wobblies published a call to arms in direct action. Uh, We are determined that Tom Barker shall be freed. We will use any tactic, adopt any weapon, do anything in our attempt to release our fighters for freedom. We are desperate men, and no one knows what may happen if the powers that be do not relax. Mm.
0: It seems strange that they're so worked up about this one guy. Yeah, they're,
1: um... A very loyal and passionate group who uh, strongly felt that any injury to any single worker was an injury to all workers. So uh, in all of their defences of um, individuals who were kind of picked out as political targets and made an example of, they really
0: rally around them
1: and make it into a big issue that they want the entire working class to take up as their own. And do
0: we have any conscription in this war or is it just... Um, social pressure and also the uh, shutting down of any free speech on the issue at this point
1: we do not have conscription we will get to that fairly soon Uh, so at this point it's just exactly as you were saying it's a recruitment so at first you don't need much recruitment then as people start to come hear stories of uh, horrific maiming and terrible conditions and all of that on the in the trenches on the western front you know, recruitment starts to slow up a little bit. And so then there's a concerted push from the government to encourage people to sign up. And yeah, as you said, a big clamping down on free speech, uh, which is critical of uh, the war effort and critical of recruitment.
0: Mm -hmm. And does anyone care about him getting jailed outside of the union movement? The Wobblies are a fairly fringe group. Okay, So at first
1: I would say that, you know, people who went to their talks at the domain and they, you know, listen to the orators on street corners and were interested in those radical politics. Yeah, they would have cared a lot. But I think in the grand scheme of things, they might not have had the press coverage and general exposure that they would come to have throughout our story today. Mm -hmm. So almost a month after Tom Barker was committed to jail, uh, a fire broke out at a warehouse full of copra on the harbour foreshore, and the warehouse was completely destroyed. A fortnight later, a manager at Mark Foy's store, which still stands today, Mm. you know the one, Mm -hmm. found some smoldering cotton waste near the silks and linens in his department. A week later, the interior of Wynn's department retail store off Oxford Street was severely burnt. Although the building still stands today housing a co-working space and is on the corner of (laughs) Liverpool Street and uh, the eponymous Wynn Lane. Uh, which is kind of directly behind Oxford Street. I think it's more or less behind Oxford Arts Factory. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know the building. Yeah, it used to have an entrance off uh, Oxford Street along a long corridor or set of stairs, I believe. Oh, okay. Still used for working. Uh, Yeah, the building still stands, and it's kind of, you know, one of those modern... Stand-up desks.
0: Coffee makers. (laughs) rolly lagers in the fridge. Vending machines full of kombucha.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Exposed brick.
1: Yes, definitely a lot of exposed (laughs) brick. Definitely a brick building. I'm sure they make full use of it in the interior. Uh, So a few days after this fire in Wynn's department store, the confectionery factory of James Stedman Limited on Clarence Street was also completely gutted by fire. Uh, Now, none of these fires were considered suspicious at the time. This was, for instance, the seventh time that Stedman's Limited had suffered fire. Uh, and no inquiries were conducted immediately. but before we get on to more fire talk, I'd just like to request permission to briefly pursue the history of Stedman's lollies for a little while.
0: Permission granted.
1: Excellent. So James Stedman Limited was a, a local Sydney company. And uh, rather than rebuilding their factory in the middle of the city after the fire, they were an early part of the trend to move manufacturing out to more open space to the south of the CBD. Mm. And so they built a brand new state-of-the-art factory called Sweet Acres in Rosebury. Mm. And it was only a few years later, in 1922, that the overwhelmingly female workforce at Sweet Acres Factory started manufacturing sweet, chewy mints called Minties.
0: Ah. Yeah.
1: From Roseberry. Yeah. Followed by, in 1931, Jaffers. Mm-hmm. And in 1939, Fantails.
0: Yeah, I mean, I probably should have known all these things were Australian, but they all just get wrapped up in the same... <laughs> plastic bags and put next to everything else and they're all owned by the same enormous multinational conglomerates yeah. <laughs> that I never had any particular national pride around the issue of confectionery.
1: No and actually it's a very very local Sydney pride uh, in Roseberry. Uh No I had no idea either I think in the 60s or 70s they're bought out by a series of as you said uh, multinational corporations I think they're eventually owned by Nestle now and sold under the brand name of Allens or something like that. Who knows the structures that be. But uh, yeah, back in the day, they were invented in Sydney in Rosebury um, at this Sweet Acres factory. Cool. Um, and signs of this industrial heritage can still be seen in Rosebery today, most notably in the name of the recently constructed Sweet Acres Park, as well as Sweet Street, Confectioner's Way, and Stedman Street.
0: Okay, cool. And where in Rosebery are we? Uh, I think it's
1: kind of close to Green Square, but I would have to check that.
0: Uh-huh. So, yeah, so James
1: Stedman Limited actually did all right in the end, even though their factory on Clarence Street was completely gutted by fire.
0: And were these targets of the fire, did they have anything in common? I mean, you mentioned that no one thought it was particularly suspicious, but were the uh, owners of these factories and warehouses particularly pro-war or anything of that ilk? well that's a very good question uh one thing that seems to be pretty
1: uh clear about them is that they're not directly related to the government so these are all kind of private enterprises so if it was a way of pressuring the government to release tom barker it seems a somewhat roundabout way of doing it having said that the insinuation later on and then the court proceedings that followed claimed that this was a clear attempt to strong arm the capitalist class and the government into releasing tom barker and uh relinquishing pressure on the recruiting effort and things like that so that it was that they were politically motivated fires and we'll get to that in just a moment but there were definitely a lot of fires in this time as we know uh, warehouses in this period in history tended to be very fire prone
0: yeah just about every city worth its salt has a great fire from the early years of the 20th century <laughs> Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. It's kind of par for the course. However, only three months into his 12 month sentence, Tom Barker was released from jail with little fanfare in early August, 1916, uh, when the governor general stepped in and decided to reduce his sentence. But little more was said about this. And I don't, to be honest, know that much more about it. However, again, this will be come to be seen as suspicious in the uh, upcoming arson trial
0: he was sorry i missed that
1: what was suspicious tom barker's put in jail for a year 12 months mm-hmm. for uh, this these posters that he's putting up a couple of fires happen and then his sentence is reduced to three months okay and he's released uh-huh yeah i mean it could have just happened because they thought it was a little bit outrageous to jail someone for 12 months for publishing People are some posters. getting released early
0: because there's not enough room for, yeah, to keep true. everyone in prison
1: Yes. Also, one of the tactics of the Walbys apparently was to literally just fill the prisons by they would never pay fines if they were convicted. They would just choose to go to prison, and they hoped that if all working class people who were convicted of crimes related to opposing the state just all went to prison, their prisons would be completely overflowing, and it would no longer be a viable way of punishing people. Anyhow, that's a bit of an aside. So Tom Barker had only been in jail for three months, uh, but a lot had changed in that time and tensions were continuing to rise in Sydney. So the Labour Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, had returned from his trip to the war front and to Britain, where conscription had been introduced. And he returned determined to introduce conscription in Australia, vowing that the soldiers on the front would not be abandoned, Over the previous year, and particularly in his absence, however, large swathes of the grassroots labour movement had hardened against conscription, and party and trade union conferences overwhelmingly declared their opposition.
0: It's hard to imagine a labour movement could possibly justify supporting conscription yeah
1: this is going to be the the thing that ends up actually splitting big parts of the labor movement is the kind of call to patriotism and getting stuck in and defending mother england in the war and doing the right thing by australia and versus uh yeah sending working people off to to die against their will so that it definitely became a massive uh, issue right
0: it was almost like a separate issue to your standard political partisanship of the day
1: yeah so yeah, exactly within the labor movement and people who were broadly kind of aligned in wanting better industrial conditions for workers there were very differing opinions on the role that australia had to play in the war
0: and was that true of the capitalists
1: uh i tended to go with the uh oblivious assumption that they were all really into it (laughs) uh i can't say for sure (laughs) I know that at the outbreak of war, one of the Horden patriarchs from the Horton Pavilion and Horden Department Store fame mm. uh, declared enthusiastically in a, in a newspaper ad that he was going to offer himself up for the war effort, but also his bevy of uh, fancy sports cars.
0: Okay, what use were they?
1: Well, I'm not quite sure what use they would have been, <laughs> but that was the kind of fervor that was going on, you know. Right. Yeah, so... The hardening against conscription within uh, the broad grassroots labour movement uh, had an alarmed correspondent in the Herald writing Wobblyism has obtained a firm hold upon the trade unions of New South Wales, and through these unions, a good grip upon the helm of the labour ship of this state. Mm. And so while Hughes was unable to persuade his cabinet to pass conscription measures, he did manage, with substantial support from the conservative opposition that you were just asking about, Jed, to cobble together a narrow, narrow majority in favour of letting the people's voice be heard. A referendum on conscription.
0: And was this when referendums were um, absolutely rife and we couldn't help but having a referendum every other day?
1: Yeah, we've talked about this, right? seems like at this point in Australia's history, there are a lot more referendums than they are now.
0: Well, I think they're three referendums on the the drinking, the closing time alone. Yeah, and I think they end up actually having two about
1: conscription, but we'll just talk about the first one for this story. Mm -hmm. Um, And if history has taught us one thing about palming responsibility onto a non-binding symbolic referendum, it's that nothing could possibly go wrong, eh? (laughs) Indeed. So just weeks after the announcement of the referendum, in the four nights from September the 8th to September the 12th, which is already a good month after Tom Barker's out of jail, so it can't possibly be about him anymore, Mm -hmm. but it could be about this uh, referendum, no less than an astounding 12 acts of attempted incendiarism were reported in Sydney over the four nights, with none of them causing any serious damage, however. Yeah. Yeah, so The Sun reported it's thought that the chemical is the same as was suspected as having been used to start a couple of fires that did serious damage in the city several months ago. So the papers are starting to come around to a conspiracy. Even if one isn't there. Well, uh, quite soon, less than a month later... Proceedings against 12 members of the Wobblies charged with treason took place.
0: Is treason still a law? Uh, I believe so. always associated with monarchies, which I guess we are. So carry on.
1: Uh, And on November the 20th, 1916, uh, the trial had begun of these 12 members. Uh, So the case against the Wobblies was heavily played up by Prime Minister Hughes, uh, who, as you can imagine, took this as quite a good opportunity to get some political capital and some good press Mm. with some wild arsonists trying to bring down the city being quite a good uh, call card to convince people that conscription was the right way to go. Makes perfect sense. Uh, So Hughes uh, associated members of the Labour Party who were opposed to conscription with these saboteurs. And the New South Wales attorney general even gave an infamous speech in Sydney in which he read out a classified IWW membership list that had been seized for the purpose of the trial. Uh, So he got hold of that and then laying heavy stress on the considerable number of foreign names in the list. He read it out to a wildly enthusiastic patriotic audience who jeered and booed. And despite complaints about contempt of court and blatant public declarations of the guilt of men who were still awaiting trial, nothing was really done about these. Uh...
0: So a politician read out a list of the members of the thing that was part of the trial. Yeah, they got their hands Jeez. on a, like, a
1: secret list of all the members and he uh, read it out in public. Uh, this uh, list of members also ended up being used to fire members of the uh, Wobblies from roles within the public service uh, once they were found to be Mm. members of that organization.
0: And when we say foreign names at this point in time, like what kind of names are we talking about? We're talking Germans, Germans and Austrians, anyone Uh with a German sounding name. And I
1: guess also, as you probably can imagine in uh, Australia, anything sounding like vaguely Central or Eastern European. It's German. It's all kind of the same in it, (laughs) in cahoots with the Kaiser. Mm. So the Sydney Mirror wrote, The public know who are behind the anti-reinforcement campaign. They know that the IWW is dominated, on the one hand, by German money and German influence, and on the other, by a gang of American and other foreign criminals who will stop at (laughs) nothing to achieve their wicked ends. (laughs) Murder, arson, forgery, smuggling, all the crimes on the calendar. Very nice. Another paper, headline... The Kaiser and the IWW want you to vote no. The Anzacs want you to vote
0: yes. Oh, we're already putting words in the mouths of the Anzacs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, interestingly, there was a little footnote to this when I read it, which said, although it is very hard to tell... The amount of research that has been done seems to indicate that people who had fought on the front lines actually opposed conscription by a slight majority, and actually the people who were most supportive of conscription amongst soldiers and recruits were people who had not yet seen the theatre of war.
0: Well, you'd have to assume so. I'm just proud that we have such a long legacy of making things up about the Anzacs. Here I was thinking this was a, you know, somewhat new phenomenon.
1: No, no, apparently not. Meanwhile, amongst this furore about the uh, accused arsonists, who've been taken to be guilty at least in much of the uh, media of the time and uh, used as a tool in a lot of speeches, the referendum did actually take place on October the 28th about conscription. And perhaps to your surprise, a no vote won out narrowly. Excellent. Uh, so conscription was defeated, which made Australia a rarity among combatants in World War I. And in the wake of the referendum defeat, the Labor Caucus uh, on the federal level moved to expel Hughes uh, on the 14th of November. But he uh, preempted them by resigning, along with 23 of his supporters, to form the National Labor Party.
0: Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And he continued to serve as prime minister, but he was now heading a minority government where he was supported by what had previously been his opposition, the Commonwealth Liberal Party, which is that fusion party that we discussed earlier. Right. And then those two parties, that is this fusion party and his new National Labour Party, they merged together to become the Nationalist Party of Australia. And it was this party which ended up winning the 1917 federal elections with Hughes at the helm. Wow. A stunning swing from left to right for Prime Minister Hughes. He's a modern day
0: Mark Latham.
1: Yeah, he's gone all the way from one side of the spectrum to the other in a way. I can imagine if you are involved in the history of the Labour Party would be a fairly significant historical moment and something that I'm sure people have very strong feelings about.
0: Probably why they never talk about their history, whereas the liberals are always banging on about Menzies. So after this referendum,
1: uh, this high-profile trial of the 12 accused arsonists did take place. There are lots of details which I'm not going to go into. The trial seems to have been a bit of a farce. Uh, There were very few star witnesses, uh, all of whom were either had already been on charges of forgery, which were removed if they took part in this trial Mm -hmm. against the members, or one of them was a clear accomplice who was a chemist found in the act of uh, having uh, materials that could be used to create a blaze, who was then uh, giving retrospective evidence against uh, these members of the uh, Wobblies about their involvement in making fires that he had helped them with. Mm Mm-hmm. There were also published written confessions by uh, style witnesses that they had given false evidence against the accused after the first trial took place at the instigation of the police, uh, that further evidence against the accused had been concocted by the police, uh, and that they were of the firm belief that many, that at least eight of the 12 people were completely innocent of the crimes of which they were convicted.
0: So they were convicted?
1: <laughs> yes, that confession was then later rescinded it was all—it's uh, all very confusing and a complete mess. What ended up happening was all twelve were convicted
0: and hanged at Darlinghurst Jail.
1: No, they were given the maximum possible sentence for the crimes for which they were on trial, uh, which was ten to fifteen years uh, in prison. Which in. Many of the cases of these men on trial was considered a complete outrage given the lack of evidence against them and the kind of flimsy nature of the trial. So I'm just going to take one example. One particularly famous case was that of a man called Grant. His last name Mm -hmm. is Grant. can't remember his first name. Also Grant. Grant, uh, Who was a hugely popular orator on the domain amongst radical circles. And he was sentenced to 15 years in prison uh, when the entirety of the case against him could more or less be uh, boiled down to 15 words that he said on the domain, which were, For every day Barker is in jail, it will cost the capitalist £10,000. So he was quoted as saying that. Uh, it seems rather scant evidence to convict a man of being involved in arson but it was argued by the prosecution that this statement implied a foreknowledge of the mm. uh, arson attacks that they claimed were the work of the wobblies and he along with the other 12 were all quit in prison for lengthy sentences yeah which only inflamed the rage of the wobblies and brought even more uh, members of the labor movement onto their side at this uh, seemingly unfair and uh, overzealous use of the legal system to bring down people with very little evidence. Mm -hmm. After the trial, despite being able to make scapegoats of these uh, Wobblies, there was still some concern that uh, the Wobblies needed to be stamped out so that they wouldn't gather any momentum from this... this trial that had been in the public eye. So in December 1916, um, Prime Minister Hughes again, he now heading his national Labour government, introduced an unlawful associations bill, which specifically was directed at the Wobblies, at the IWW, and outlawed them by name. And this rapidly passed through Parliament in a matter of days. And somewhat confusingly, I don't know if it was just grand political gesturing or a massive oversight, uh, but the IWW got around the bill pretty easily because they just changed their name to the Workers' Defense (laughs) and Release Committee. And then apparently the the bill no longer (laughs) was directed specifically at them. So they were able to continue for, I think, about another six months in this way until mid-1917. And again, their exposure in the media and their public presence was only rising. So by uh, May Day in 1917, there were 12,000 copies of a special edition of their newspaper Direct Action distributed, uh, which is considered apparently a record for a radical newspaper in Australia that still stands today. But it was also at this time that federal authorities withdrew the permit for direct action to be transported by the post. So it now had to be hand-distributed by sympathizers.
0: Mm. They, what, they banned newspaper
1: mail-outs? The, the post is run, run federally? Mm. Well, it certainly is now. Yeah, so they said, okay, well, we're going to ban the direct action from being transported by any postman. Right. Uh, which made things a little difficult. And in August 1917, so only a few months after that, Prime Minister Hughes amended the Unlawful Associations Act to declare any association illegal whose purposes... Were those prescribed by the act so rather than naming any specific organization it was more about what they were doing and so by september the uh, wobblies were defiantly maintaining their membership turning up in court refusing to renounce it and being sent into uh, six months of hard labor for their efforts and this was really the uh, end of the wobblies as an organization in Sydney. About 18 men and women took their last defiant gesture to the, against the state in the courtroom. But really, that's kind of an indication of size of this organization in terms of its actual membership. Admittedly, there would have been a lot of uh, members who didn't choose to uh, maintain their membership and get put in jail for six months. But it's really a fairly small group that was still managed to become the talking point around Australia and around Sydney.
0: Okay, that's pretty interesting. I feel like that's a common thread that, um, and I don't know if this is particular to Australia or it's a fairly, you know, just general human phenomenon, that most people are quite apathetic to whatever's going on. And whenever there's this one group that's like scapegoated, it's actually a much smaller issue than the people who are bothered about it seem to imply that the issue gets amplified to become a massive
1: yeah talking point yeah so interestingly this once fringe group suddenly becomes the kind of talk of the town and as we're going to see very soon it's, it's already dominated discussions about conscription. And uh, this final removal of the Wobblies organization, it was completely snuffed out during the largest strike in the history of Australia. The one big strike. Yeah, the Great Strike of 1917.
0: Great Strike of 1917.
1: Excellent. <laughs> I take it by your laughter that this is not a strike that you're particularly aware of.
0: No, I'm not. But I love the naming convention of... The great X of year Y.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I too was completely unaware of the great strike of 1917. I feel like this is definitely a point in history that's completely dropped off the radar for most Sydney Mm-hmm. But it was a very significant event at the time when a lot of these issues that we've already talked about came to an head even more which began in the Radwick Railway Workshop. had been going on for quite some time, beginning in 1916, for instance. Um, There was serious consternation when a poster was found, which read, Slow work means more jobs. More jobs means less unemployed. Less competition means higher wages. Mm. Less work, more pay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like it. (laughs) <laughs> what was they doing With the Well more importantly Than all that Why was there A railway workshop In Randwick And how did it connect To Sydney's railway network Of the day
1: uh, So this is The railway workshop That infamously The trams Were uh, burnt Okay at. trams Yeah tram yards I believe uh, Which is now The site of Randwick Tafe mm-hmm. And I think also There's a bus depot There is And a couple of other Things around there That whole area Was a large tram
0: workshop Okay uh,
1: Even though IWW Membership lists seized during the trials um, had been used to fire or remove from service known members of the IWW in government jobs. Their advocacy of go slow and direct action had kind of found broader sympathy within non-members and the labour movement in general. And so, as concerns about productivity and efficiency, which had been slowing considerably over the previous years, came to a head on July the twentieth, nineteen seventeen the New South Wales Railways Commissioner introduced a new system of closely monitoring and recording the work done by every worker in the Randwick workshops.
0: Fitbits on a lot of them, did he?
1: Yeah, the old uh, Jeff Bezos treatment. <laughs> Make sure he knows what they're doing every minute of the day. And as you can imagine, Jed, the workers were none too pleased with this new measure. And within two weeks, this proposed change had been roundly rejected and the workshop employees all came together to strike. The railway workers at Randwick were quickly joined by railway workers at the Everly Rail Yards near Redfern Station, uh, which are still quite well preserved today as part of a precinct which includes the towering glass headquarters of Commonwealth Bank. Mm-hmm. But that precinct has also included some historical uh, rail yards, which I believe have some museums and they're quite beautiful.
0: There's also a functioning rail yard there. Oh, there you go. Up until recently, the, in fact, I think still explorers, some of the regional train carriages are maintained there.
1: Okay. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. I normally play basketball uh, on this evening in that precinct at the basketball courts there. So I go past those beautiful rail sheds, sheds quite regularly, but these Everly workers and the Randwick workers were also soon joined by carters, tram drivers, seamen, miners and other workers throughout Sydney. A really good source for finding out more about the strike and hearing first-hand accounts, actually, from people who were alive at the time, with some lovely production quality contemporary audio from 1917, things like that, is a podcast called "The Great Strike of 1917," published by the City of Sydney.
0: Mm-hmm. We love a well-produced audio-infused podcast.
1: <laughs> so I would uh, recommend having a listen to that if you would like to learn no more. Um, but within weeks, seventy thousand people were on strike in sydney which given that the population was only around seven hundred thousand, uh, is one in ten and was a really huge industrial upheaval probably the largest industrial upheaval that uh, has ever been experienced in australia and it's probably the closest that we've ever come to a general strike in australia uh, and a part, at part that times it would have brought parts of the city to a complete standstill
0: and what were their aims, aside from no monitoring of workers at the Randwick rail yard? Well, that's an excellent question, Jad, because presciently, the very
1: last issue of direct action before it was shut down, as we were noting, because they were clamping down once and for all on the wobblies, mm-hmm. I noted that, and I quote, rather than all industries linking up into one concrete body of the working class, we had Almost a score of different unions on strike and each union trying to settle the trouble in its own little way. So direct action predicted, this inefficient system only spreads discontent among the men and they at last become tired of hanging around doing nothing and hearing nothing and getting dissatisfied, defeat will follow. And we began our episode with the Wobblies' surprisingly clear foresight about the horrors of the Great War and we'll have to kind of start to bring it to an end here by noting that they were again spot on the money with their predictions about the splintering of all of the different unions and the lack of one clear objective when it came to this great strike of 1917, as the outcome of the great strike, as they predicted, was a broken and defeated working class returning to work.
0: Right. Did they have to get monitored? I would imagine
1: that that system of monitoring probably went into place.
0: Fruitless strike.
1: Yeah, it was a fruitless strike. Labor was desperately sought by the establishment, from particularly from rural areas, with a call for patriotism to come to the city and help out <laughs> when all of the uh, workers in Sydney were on strike. And uh, this uh, scab labor was housed in enormous encampments in Taronga Zoo, oh. and also along the foreshore of Dawes Point and even in the SCG itself. Oh. And so the city was able to hobble along.
0: If they were real patriots, they would have been on the Western Front. <laughs> well, <laughs> perhaps that
1: was the argument amongst the disgruntled workers, but it didn't do them any good. Yeah, so um, that's my uh, messy story for this week. It's the story of a lot of tension and conflict within a working class politics in Sydney. Includes a number of buildings getting burnt down, some lollies, famous lollies in Sydney, mm. important political referendums, and also the history of the Labour Party and uh, other, Quite parties. A few other
0: parties. So Billy Hughes won an election as is, as the nationalist, his second election.
1: Uh, yes, I'm not sure if it was the second, but yeah, the, the one in 1917. Yeah.
0: Okay, his next election. And then continued on as a this nationalist party that just sort of became an amalgamation of what had effectively been the Labour and
1: the Liberal Party. The discontented nationalist wing of the Labour Party plus what had been the Protectionist Party and the Free Trade Party, which had all kind of come
0: together. And our modern Labour Party is successor to the party that Billy Hughes bailed on. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, they've ha- they've had people
1: splintering off it for... many decades but it's still it's still there it's the yeah the by far the oldest continuous party in australia
0: cool well that's a very interesting story alistair it took me a while to figure out exactly where it might be going um and it ended suddenly (laughs) but uh i liked hearing about the great strike and i actually find myself wanting to just have you keep talking and telling me more because it felt like it was going to be just like a hundred years of history of the labor movement in Sydney. <laughs> I'm ready for the next chapter.
1: Yeah. Well, I am too, to be honest, cause I don't know what happens next. <laughs> there are a lot of interesting stories in here. I actually came upon the story of this arson trial and these twelve men who were became kind of a cause celebre of the labour movement from a podcast episode by that good man who does Forgotten Australia. Uh huh. He made an episode called Percy Brookfield, our hero politician, about a politician called Jack Brookfield in Broken Hill. Yeah, listen to
0: this one. Oh man, I, l-
1: I really like that episode. Mm. Fascinating. I would highly recommend it. I'll put a note in the show notes for anyone interested. And uh, that tangentially related to uh, this case in Sydney. And I thought it was such a Sydney specific case that I had to learn more about it.
0: Yeah, well, thanks very much for sharing. And you mentioned that you had a book Yes. So the book uh,
1: is very well researched and exhaustive.
0: Sounds right up your alley.
1: About the specifically this uh, trial and this case of the Wobblies. But it is very, very concentrated on the trial, which wasn't actually that helpful, as you know, from me trying to tell the story. I was trying to tell a longer narrative and also it kind of assumes that you know quite a lot about the labor movement and Australian politics in the first 20 years of uh after federation
0: that is a niche publication
1: (laughs) it yes that's what i'm trying to say it's a niche book the book is called sydney is burning by ian turner it's got a provocative title and an excellent front cover uh and it is it's a very interesting book if you want to know all of the specifics of every single one of the 12 men who are on trial what the evidence against them was and how the trial took place. That's the main emphasis of the book and less so on the kind of general political context, which Jed and I knew nothing about, but uh, it kind of assumes you already know that. And do we have
0: any interesting um, (laughs) articles from direct action or perhaps some funny photographs from the time
1: uh yeah there's a lot of that around i have a couple of like images of the posters the anti-conscription mm-hmm. and the anti-enlistment posters are definitely pretty available
0: buying a couple of those up on the instagram
1: yeah um we will i'll be able to put some together and i'll link some uh, articles in the show notes as well so you can have a p- look at some of these pictures of
0: excellent yeah
1: of the wobblies and their their posters and then again if you're interested in the strike there's the podcast episode from the city of sydney so there's quite a bit of information around all of this uh, out there if you're interested in knowing more cool i think what was interesting to me was just how much turmoil there was politically during the First World War in Australia and how unaware I was of that.
0: Yeah, it's so easy to feel like it was just everyone going mental and signing up, trains packed with recruits off to the front line. And as as we discussed, women sending out feathers and like all that jazz.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe people kind of started to see that there was horrors associated with the war and enthusiasm was waning a little, But then you get to the end of the war and the Allies win and that's the end of the story kind of thing.
0: Turns out it might have been a bit more complicated than that.
1: Cool. Well, Jed, thank you so much for being such a sympathetic listener to my story. I would now love to hear a little more about what I'm to expect in a fortnight's time from you.
0: Well, the good news is some of the research you did for this episode will be relevant to being a good listener next fortnight, which I'm very excited about after your poor performance last episode. What? (laughs) With no knowledge whatsoever of bush rangers. Oh,
1: yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah that was a bad performance.
0: <laughs> so my clue is that in the late 19th century, the colonial government was in the midst of a building spree in Sydney. Not just the railways and sewers we've already discussed, but spectacularly grand brick and sandstone buildings, many of which are still with us today. Mm-hmm. In true Sydney style, though, the private sector wasn't too far behind... So next episode, we're going to explore some of Sydney's most epic temples to 19th century consumerism and what remains of them today. Oh, that's cool. I'm excited for that. That's an, I feel like
1: we haven't done an episode about buildings or yeah edifices construction infrastructure for a little while so i think
0: we're well due we are and you very conveniently named dropped a couple this episode
1: yeah 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 so we're talking maybe department stores here
0: well we might cross into that territory can't say too much
1: (laughs) that's cool i'm looking forward to that yeah i feel like i've been interested in those buildings for a little while now i'm looking forward to some talk about palaces of consumerism
0: you do love shopping
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not. I like the buildings, though. I like walking past them and looking at them.
0: Someone's got to pay for them, so get in there and start buying things.
1: Exactly. Well, it's it's thanks to the good work of the people who do like shopping that I get (laughs) to look at those buildings.
0: Eternally grateful. Well, thanks so much, Alistair, for your excellent story. And thanks to everyone out there for listening in to another episode of Stories from Sydney. If you
1: enjoyed this episode, uh, feel free to tell your friends and spread the word. And you can also follow us on social
0: media. See you next time for my Story from Sydney.